This is the first portrait that Thomas Jefferson sat for. It was done in the spring of 1786 in London, and it was painted by an American artist, Mather Brown, who, like other American artists of the time, some other American artists of the time, had traveled to London to study with Benjamin West, who had become a very successful artist in London, but his roots were also in America. This painted portrait of Thomas Jefferson came to the National Portrait Gallery in 1999 as a bequest from Charles Francis Adams. And therein lies the heart of our story. Charles Francis Adams was a direct descendant of John Adams, who was in the 1780s Jefferson's very good friend. This portrait was part of essentially an exchange of portraits between two friends, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And Jefferson's portrait stayed in the Adams family. Adams' portrait, which oop, I have to get from you, my prop. Adams' portrait, also done by Mather Brown in 1788, stayed in Jefferson's family. Please feel free to take a look and pass it around. This portrait opens a window for us into that friendship, into Jefferson's nascent portrait collection, which he later brought back with him to Monticello, and to what it was to create a, a public image of an American diplomat for um, the time that he was at the French court. So we have several interlocking stories all centered on this really very beautiful and elegant painting of Thomas Jefferson. In 1786, Adams was in London. He was minister to the court of St. James. Jefferson was living in Paris. He had, on the retirement of Benjamin Franklin as Minister to France in 1785, become Minister to France. He had been negotiating some commercial treaties before taking on that position, and he traveled to London in the spring of 1786 to try to negotiate a few more treaties without really any success. But while he was there, he called on the Adams and uh, was persuaded because he wanted a portrait of himself and also one of John Adams to bring back to Paris to sit to Mather Brown. Now, there were other American artists in London at the time. Gilbert Stuart was there and, of course, Benjamin West. Mather Brown was fairly young. He was studying with West, but somehow he had gotten to know the Adams family. John Adams had had a portrait done by Mather Brown about 1785. Abigail Adams had been painted, and I also think their daughter, Abigail, or Nabby, had been painted. So Mather Brown came to Jefferson's attention. He sat for this portrait, and after the sittings, he left to go back to Paris. He then later decided that he wanted a portrait of Adams as well. 
So letters began to fly back and forth across the channel. And Jefferson was um, working also with another artist, John Trumbull, who was serving as Jefferson's sort of private secretary at the time. And Trumbull was helping Jefferson amass a collection of portraits. Not a huge collection, but he wanted a portrait of George Washington, obviously a portrait of John Adams. He wanted a portrait of Thomas Paine. He wanted portraits of Christopher Columbus, Amerigo Vespucci, Hernando Cortez, and who's, who's left? De Soto. <laughs> he wanted portraits of Francis Bacon, John Locke, and Isaac Newton, the three greatest thinkers, as he called them, the world has ever known. He was putting together his own collections of portraits of people who were important for America, Enlightenment thought. And he wasn't the only person to do this. But it was interesting because he was putting together this collection to hang in his house in Paris so that when people came to see him, because one's house was really a rather public place in the 18th century, especially if you were minister to uh, the court of Versailles. His own portrait would have been part of that collection as well. And what you're seeing here is an extremely elegant Thomas Jefferson. He's wearing a frock coat, a very sort of loose-fitting and slightly comfortable and yet still appropriate uh, dress coat with a turned-down collar. It actually doesn't seem to have any buttons. And there are other uh, paintings of frock coats that show the more sort of normal buttons that you would see on them. Um, this may mean that it was a French frock coat that he acquired in Paris because they often didn't have buttons. We learn so much from historians of costume, and I'm very much indebted to two colleagues who um, have studied Jefferson and his portraits and his collections from his home at Monticello, Elizabeth Chu and Gay Wilson whose research into this portrait and Jefferson's costume really formed the basis of much of what I'm talking to you about tonight, uh, as well as one other colleague, David Machut, who sadly is no longer living, who studied this exchange of portraits between Jefferson and Adams. So um, as you find in, in so many of life's endeavors, we're always building on the scholarship of others. So Jefferson's wearing a frock coat, a beautiful striped silk waistcoat, a wonderful sort of pleated neck linen and with a little tie at the top. And interestingly, and this is 1786, he's not wearing a wig. He's wearing his own hair, which has been dressed with a fragrant hairdressing called pomatum and then powdered. And we know this is most likely true because we don't see any of the real telltale signs at the edge of a wig, which you can sometimes see in portraits. But also, there are no records of Jefferson buying wigs at this time. But there are records of him buying copious amounts of hair powder and talking about how his uh, valet de chambre, his valet, was dressing his hair. And in fact, he made a wonderful comment, which I can't quote precisely to Abigail Adams, in saying that I'm probably only going to live about 12 more years, and one of them is going to be taken up with having my damn hair dressed and powdered. But you have to remember that Jefferson is going to the court at Versailles, which was here in these years before the French Revolution one of the, the most formal places he could go. And he had to 
walk a tightrope because he had to be dressed appropriately and comport himself with all the formality required of a minister of the young United States to this, this bastion of monarchical power, the court of Versailles. But he also wanted to convey a sense of the simplicity of the new American Republic. And of course, he is following Benjamin Franklin, who had his own way of appearing to be, you know, sort of the, the, the man with the beaver hat who's coming into the court of Versailles, determined to shake things up a little bit. Jefferson clearly wasn't going to follow precisely in Franklin's footsteps, because let's face it, who could? <laughs> But he wanted to appear to be both formal and also carry himself with an elegant simplicity. And if you look at other portraits of the time, and I, and I don't have a cheat sheet for you, but um, there are portraits of uh, French aristocrats from very much the same time wearing formal clothing they would have worn for a visit to the court, and they would have been wearing ribbons and decorations, not really like military medals, but, but honors, sort of like the, the one medal that some Americans wore uh, was given to those who fought with Washington as officers, the society of the, members of the Society of the Cincinnati wore a decoration. But you won't see any of that in Jefferson's attire. And the other thing that gives away that he is promoting the American Republic is this classical figure in the background who is holding a, a pole with what is actually a little cap on the top. She is actually meant to portray liberty. And the cap that she has on top of her pole is called a Phrygian cap. And it is a reference to caps worn by freed slaves in ancient Rome. And over the course of the Renaissance in the 17th and 18th century, it came to symbolize liberty. And so Jefferson has a figure of liberty with a liberty cap in the background. The same kind of figure shows up on designs for the Great Seal of the United States at much the same time. So in this really rather quiet way, Jefferson is indicating exactly who he is and who he represents. Now, the painting is begun in 1786. Jefferson's back in France. He wants Adams' portrait. Adams is demurring, and he's too busy, and he doesn't do it. But finally, he sits for Mather Brown in 1788. Jefferson also agreed that Adams could have a replica of his portrait, a, a copy by Mather Brown, which we art historians call a replica. And we're fairly sure, but not positive, that this painting, which is in fact signed M. Brown, 1786, was the original. But Jefferson wanted the original. But this is the portrait that stayed with Adams. So we're not quite sure, scholars aren't quite sure what happened. But it seems likely that this is the original portrait. Now, Jefferson had Adams' portrait. Adams had his own portrait. Adams had Jefferson's portrait. Jefferson had a replica of his own portrait. Am I confusing you enough? Each man had a portrait of himself and of his good friend. At some point after the death of both men, one of those portraits in each family 
disappeared. And so, as I mentioned before, the portrait of Adams survived in the Jefferson family, and this portrait survived in the family of Adams. Um, Adams' portrait ended up, after being sold at auction after Jefferson's death, uh, in the collections of the Boston Athenaeum, and that's the image I was passing around for you to see. At the time, two different people commented that Adams' likeness was really very good, and that Jefferson's not so much. <laughs> and yet, when we look at miniature portraits done by Trumbull, at very much the same time, the features are all there. And one scholar has suggested that, in fact, because Jefferson was such a lively person, that it would have been unusual for his face to have been seen in the, to this degree of repose. So maybe that's it, because when we, from the distance of over 200 years, look at other portraits of Jefferson from around the same time, it seems to be quite a wonderful likeness of him. Now, what happened with the relationship between these two dear friends who wanted their portraits so badly that they crossed the English Channel to, to make that happen? By the 1790s, and I am not a biographer of either Adams or Jefferson, but I can tell you that by the 1790s, political divisions caused them to despise each other. They hated each other. And they hated each other until about 1812, when Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was a physician in Philadelphia, decided that enough was enough. These were two elder statesmen. They both served their country as president. They should get back together. And he prodded them. And Adams is in Massachusetts. Jefferson is retired to Monticello. He prods them to get back together. And so they begin a correspondence that lasts from 1813 until 1826. And I think it's Adams who says to Jefferson, it would be a shame if we died before we explain ourselves to each other. Mm -hmm. And so in these latter days of their lives, they strike up a correspondence which has been published and edited by a wonderful scholar, Douglas Adair. And you can read these letters. And they are fabulous, wonderful reading. On July the 4th, 1826, Jefferson dies. Later that day, Adams dies. And I don't know if you all know this, but it's one of those most amazing coincidences in history. And when Adams dies, according to his family, one of his last words was, but Jefferson survives. And of course, he didn't. But this portrait contains all those stories in it, and I hope maybe I've helped you to bring it to life a little bit tonight, and I'm happy to try to answer questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Who's going to be first? You go first, and then you'll be second. I was just curious where, uh, you said his name is Matthew Brown. Yes. He was dis, uh, descended from the Mather family of Boston. You've heard of Cotton Mather. And he wanted to study art and went to London and really had a very nice career there. Um, I think he did come back to the United States eventually, maybe by the 1790s. Um, 
There are publications on his portraiture. This is very typical of his portraiture. He's working in a very English style. If you think of John Singleton Copley's work before the American Revolution, very sort of tightly painted style. Even when Copley got to England, he began to adopt this looser British style of painting. And that's what Mather Brown was also uh, affecting, that sort of loosely painted style. So he had a very nice career. And you had a question. Well, I was just going to say, it, it, it looks very modern. I mean, the painting style looks very modern to me. The colors are so bright. and the and the drapery in the background is very loosely rendered. It's very fresh and loosely painted. In fact, one of the um, one of the contemporaries of Jefferson who commented that it didn't really look like him called it. He said it's very much of an etude, a study, and um, it definitely has a, a freshness, and you can see the brush strokes. And maybe that's what yes. you're seeing yeah. is that freshness. Yeah. It's also in very good condition. And even its, its original frame was uh, conserved recently through a wonderful grant from the Smithsonian Women's Committee, which um, that group sponsors the Smithsonian Crafts Fair every April. I don't know if you've visited the Crafts Fair or know about it, but all the proceeds from the fair are given back to the Smithsonian, and we all apply for grants, and one of those grants helped conserve the frame for this portrait. Other questions? I have a question. I, yes. I'm familiar with the Chumbo portrait very much, which I like. And it's very different from this one. It's around the same time period. That's right. It's, it's less formal. This one almost has an 18th century version of airbrushing compared to the Trumbull. I don't mm -hmm. know if you do that or not. Mm -hmm. But I, I just wonder if you could explain the difference. It, it is, to me, so dramatic. And this one looks so um, perfect almost compared to the other one, which I think the family liked a lot. You know, Jefferson, once he sort of broke the ice and sat for this portrait, he sat for many portraits throughout his career. And each artist sees, I think, something a little different in Jefferson. Trumbull knew him very well. And I think he brought that deep knowledge of Jefferson. He was with him so much in Paris and later to the, um, I think the portrait you're talking about is a, is a small portrait. There's one that one belongs to Monticello and one to the White House, um, and it's it has a a vivacity that you don't see here, and a, a bit more sort of a sense of individuality, and that may be what others were seeing and, and not liking about this one. Uh, Rembrandt Peale did wonderful portraits of Jefferson when he was president, including one that belongs to the New York Historical Society with a beautiful fur collar. And in that, you get a great deal of, of precision and detail. Thomas Sully painted Jefferson later in his life, including a wonderful full length. And there, you get a very free brush and just different interpretations, which is with a public figure, you can get insight into the way a lot of different artists see that person. Whereas for most people at this time, there would have been no portrait or perhaps for someone with enough money to afford one, a portrait of the head of the family or maybe of a husband and wife or a beloved child. But with these public figures, there were so many portraits because there was such an interest in them. And prints were made after some of the portraits and exchanged and, and sold. So that you, you've hit on something kind of wonderful that with somebody like Jefferson, we can try to have a contest as to who really captured him. But of course, we don't know. Other questions? Yeah, how, 
where the replicas made? What, by what process? Are they just containing the original and, and one sided? Yes. Yes, and some artists would make replicas that were very, very, very careful copies, to use that word. Um, and you might find that they're a, a little bit stiffer because they're not painting from life, but from a, a two-dimensional object to begin with. Others painted replicas with as much um, freedom as originals, and Gilbert Stewart was one of those. I've, I've learned from my colleague at the Portrait Gallery, Ellen Miles, that one way to tell if a painting is a replica by Stewart or perhaps a copy by someone else, particularly when you're looking at portraits of Washington, is that Stewart would get bored. So he would <laughs> change things up a little bit, a little bit different neck linen or something like that, um, keeping the main gist of the thing, but with a little bit of a change, whereas other artists would make a very careful copy, even of a painting they had done themselves. Other questions? Well, I'm so pleased that you came. Thank you, Thank you very much. And you've got 30 more minutes.